0: We are here actually to talk about uh, what the elements do with regards to uh, the text that is before us. But before I delve into the text, I want to say how much I appreciate the opportunity that our pastor is affording us to uh, share the Word of God with you. And by the way, I, uh, I uh, I will continue to welcome Chad in the third floor. Chad, you know, uh, they say that um, the, um, the air is a bit rarefied there. And this is perhaps why uh, you don't hear a whole lot of jokes up there. Because you've got to save your breath. But I will make sure that uh, there is an extra oxygen mask for you. Having to uh, go through a book or a gospel chapter by chapter has the advantage of getting the sweep of the intent of the author. And before I delve into uh, chapter 4 of the uh, Gospel according to Mark, I'd like to, uh, to, to start by giving a little bit of a synopsis of uh, where we have come so far. Because as I reread the first verses of, of the first chapters rather of uh, the book of uh, Mark, I became aware that it is very important that before we actually understand the, the setting And the context of chapter uh, 4, we need to understand what is the intent of the author, Mark. The more I read, the more I realized one thing. Mark has nothing else in mind but to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, he starts by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes through one action, one miracle of Jesus after another. There's not much time wasted in, in fact, there's no time wasted in genealogies like Matthew would. There's not much time spent on the encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist. The... Language and the way that the text is structured is one of haste, is one of power, is one of just getting the attention of the readers. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the time when I had to prepare resumes, CVs to send out to prospective employers. Yes, there was a time in my career where... I had to send a lot of CVs. I sent hundreds of CVs in my career, believe it or not. You may not think that uh, this is uh, what pastors do, but uh, I I had another career when I aspired to be a marketing and sales executive and one thing I learned very quickly is that if I wanted to catch the attention of, of a prospective employer, I needed to have bullet points just below my name. You know, none of this stuff responsible for blah, 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 no. Double the sales in six months. Turn the company around in one year. Lower the budget by 60%, stuff like that. Or try this. How, do, how would that get your attention? If I could have written, um, started a company in my garage and built up a brand new market. Today, my company is the most valuable on the planet. I couldn't say that, of course, but you know who could have. His name is Apple Jobs. I'm sorry, uh, Steve Jobs, founder of the Apple company. Or what about this? Um, Devised, designed and created a new virtual reality interface and sold my company for $2 billion before I turned 22. Would that get your attention? His name is Palmer Lucky, this is no joke. Um, But yet, you know, all comparatively easy. The stuff that Mark tries to convey to his readers here regarding Jesus, that is hard. Jesus casts out unclean spirits. He just speaks to them and they flee before him. Jesus heals someone stricken by a fever perhaps malaria, just by speaking. That is hard. That ought to get someone's attention. Jesus cleanses lepers just by by, by touching them. Jesus heals a whole town, one thing after another in that first chapter of Mark, to prove that Jesus is a miracle worker that is worthy of the reader's attention. And then... It's not only short, but he also uses words of action. And that's what you want to pack your CV with if you're trying to get somebody's attention as well. You want to show that you do stuff. Then they went into Capernaum and they went or entered into the synagogue. Then he went and, and healed. And it goes on and on like this throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what is more, just to show that Jesus is is in a hurry to make his mark every so often. In fact, in the first chapter of Mark, the word immediately is used eight times. I mean, you want to get someone's attention? Immediately, now. So this is the way that Mark starts out by establishing Jesus' credentials as somebody who doesn't just pepper his CV with, you know, outstanding stuff in the business, but stuff that is impossible, that are really the mark of someone who is gifted from above, who has extraordinary powers and capacities. And then, as we move to chapter 3, the pace gradually slows down. You can't keep up going and coming all the time. So that by the end of chapter 3, it says, verse 32, that a multitude was sitting around him. So now the the, the picture that you have in your mind changes gradually from someone who is a go-go and getter to someone who is actually holding steady in a place while people sit around him and the text doesn't tell us here whether he's Jesus is standing or sitting it just says the crowd sits around him and we can well imagine that he might have been standing but in the tradition of rabbis back then it is more likely that he was sitting but yet that is not being expressed there It is only when you start reading chapter 4 that all of a sudden the mood and the stage is very, very much more quiet. And again, it says, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and, and sat in it. This is actually the first time We see Jesus sitting. Now the mood is calm. It is quiet. And you can just imagine that Jesus sits there on the boat while the throngs are sitting on the grass, on the shore, and listening to him. And he taught them many things. And we know that there are now three parables that are coming. The parable of the sower, the parable of the light, and the parable of the growing seed. And Mark starts, verse 3, by putting in Jesus' mouth, or by recording, rather, the word, listen. Now, you know, sometimes I, I, I wish we had not just the words of Jesus on paper, but actual audio recordings, if not even videos. Wouldn't that be neat? I've wondered sometimes, why did God not wait until mankind had discovered the technology of audio or video to to fulfill the plan of redemption through His Son, Jesus? Because there, I would have liked to know whether the way that He addressed the crowd was by saying, listen up now. Or rather, and more likely, by saying like a good storyteller would, who is trying to attract the attention of his listener, who is trying to, 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 to gather his children very close to him at bedtime to tell them a story. Listen now. Which one of the two would it be? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that this is the only time in the gospel that a speech by Jesus is prefaced with the word, listen. Is that significant? Well, perhaps not for the crowds that Mark was writing for, the Romans, who were very much into action, and getting things done. But perhaps it was for those of Judaic background who had been taught since early on to pray every day the so-called Shema. Listen, Israel. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Why don't we turn to these verses? Deuteronomy chapter 4 to begin with. Chapter 4, verse 1 that starts with the word listen. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. And then, he starts teaching. These are the teachings of Moses to the people of Israel. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, we have the Shema, which I just quoted. But the Shema is actually just an introduction to something much deeper. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up the whole life of a Jewish family was centered around conveying the importance of the teachings of Yahweh to their children and now you see that once we have captured that element The whole setting of the Lake of Genesareth takes a different meaning. When Jesus gathers the people around Him, He gathers them like His children to teach them the precepts of the Lord and to enable them to facilitate their love of Yahweh with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. And now the setting is set. He's got their attention. He has also identified himself, for the astute listener, as the one that Moses foretold would come that would be greater than he. Jesus starts and says, Behold, a, sow- a sower went out to sow. What a beautiful expression. It's, it's short and it says what it says. The sower doesn't go out for any other purpose or business than to sow. He is not distracted by the scenery. He's not distracted by whatever weather there is, whether it rains or shines. He is out there to do what? To sow. How often do we get distracted in our purpose of teaching our children or of taking advantage of the opportunities the Lord puts in front of us to pass on those teachings that will help our children or our neighbors grow in faith. For this is the purpose of Jesus' teaching. a sower went out to sow." And then, of course, we know this, the, the parable. Seeds fall by the wayside. And, you know, you see, um, you see today a sower and... I mean, a sower is, all, is almost an anachronism. It doesn't even exist anymore. Today, everything is done mechanically and you have all these neat rows of, of corn, of wheat, and it's beautiful, it's symmetric, it's clean but perhaps it's also a little bit boring. And life, real life, is not as clean and as symmetric as we want it to be, is it? No, it can be messy. And so this is, this is the environment where this sower operates. The field is not square, it is probably, it's got all kinds of angles and corners. And he sows, and as a professional sower would do, he would have this gesture, this noble gesture that would liberally spread and scatter the seed abroad. And some of that seed would fall out by the edge, by the edge of that field, to the way, uh, uh, close to where the way is. And some fell on stony ground. In fact, it's interesting to realize that um, back then, the seed was scattered, was sown even before the plow was uh, was applied to the to the soil. Now, I'm not a I'm not a, an agronomist. I do not know anything about seeding. When I uh, when I planted uh, my first garden, I did pretty much with my salad seed the way that the sower had done which was to sp- scatter it like this and i had salad uh, growing every <coughs> everywhere instead of in neat rows but it is indeed strange to think that they would sow the seed first and then plow and so obviously you know if they plow after the seed fell then some of that ground would be pretty stony and immediately, it sprang up and <clears throat> the earth and had no roots. So when the sun went up, it was scorched. Some seed fell among the thorns and it was choked. But finally, some seed fell on good ground. Here we have a story that tells us that Not every ground is the same, not every heart is the same. And Jesus, who is the sower, is well aware that among the crowd that is listening to, to him, there will be various ways of receiving his word. Among our children, there are also various ways of receiving the word. And even among the disciples, the seed did not seem to have spr- to have sprouted, to have cut roots, to bear fruits. Why can I say that? This is the interesting interesting thing about that chapter four. We then have, of course, the parable of the of the light under the basket, the parable of the growing seed, which are meant to re-emphasize and, and, and affirm that parable that relates to the growth of faith. But the chapter 4 finishes with a story which is completely out of sync, if you will, at least on preliminary uh, notice, completely out of the serene and calm surroundings that Mark had sketched to begin his chapter. For on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But then something catches our attention. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they avo- awoke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing i started by saying that there is this tremendous amount of energy of uh, dynamism that begins the gospel of mark jesus is portrayed as the power man as the wonder worker as the go-go man and then in the beginning of chapter three, finally he sits down. And by the end of chapter, uh, sorry, end of cha- beginning of chapter three, and now at the end of chapter three, four, he is what? He's asleep. So it's literally like the juice has run out of the battery. It's literally as if that wonder worker, that individual who was presented as being God's son, now shows and is allowed to, see, to show his full humanity. That is rather normal, isn't it? Tired at the end of the day. But here we have the disciples now. Who feel betrayed, feel let down. Because he is not working with them to, to, to save them from that tempest. That blew down into the Lake uh, uh, Galilee. It's not like they were inexperienced. And certainly, they must have seen storms fall down on their boat before. But that storm had something special. What the text doesn't tell us, but which the Spirit prophecy tells us, is that there were also lightning. And you know what happens when lightning strikes? It also sends out a deafening crash and thunder. Now when you combine the two, the waves that are tossed by the wind, the howling winds, and the crashing sound of thunder, then you have a picture that surely would have scared the most, the most experienced. Fishermen out there on the lake. I find, as I as I as I think as I meditate on on this text, I find it really really interesting. Because Jesus is sleeping there, showing his humanity. And you may say, well, you know, if there was such uh, lightning and thunder, then probably he would have woken up a long time ago. But uh, remember that Jesus was still rel- relatively young, young, 30 years of age, I remember sleeping through thunderstorms at 30 years of age and not hearing anything. So what gives there? Are the disciples really sinking, Or are they just panicking? Jesus has not been woken up by the waves yet. Notice. And I can tell you that even though you may be deaf while sleeping to whatever happens around you, if somebody drops a bucket of water on you, you will wake up. So I'm not quite sure how far into panic mode they should have gone, but truly the surroundings, the crash of the thunder and of the waves, put them into a panic mode and so they woke him up and they said teacher do you not care that we perish jesus came to save them and he is being asked whether he does not care That must have been a tremendous blow. But something that proved exactly the point that Jesus was teaching on that day, it is that as he sows the seed, some of that seed falls on ground that does not let faith sprout up and bear fruit. And this is why he then rose, rebuked the wind and he said to them, why are you so faithful, so, so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Yes, indeed, the whole story the whole stories of chapter 4 culminates in that storm on, the lake, on Lake Galilee, showing that this is exactly what Jesus fears most, that his words would be scattered even among his disciples and, the, and yet wasted there. Another interesting thing that we need to notice is that when Jesus arose and rebuked the wind, he said to the sea, and this is a mild translation, peace be still. Well, once again, I don't know how he said that. But really, a more forceful translation would have been shut up, quiet, And so we have this amazing chapter 4 that starts with the words, Listen. And all becomes calm around him as his listeners tune into what he has to say. Chapter 4 begins with the word, Listen, and ends up with the words, Shut up! Why? Because it is the tactic of the devil per excellence to try to distract us and if possible to put so much fear into us that we would think that we would drown and forget that god jesus does care indeed oh what what hurtful words were pronounced when they said don't you care that we sink that we're drowning And isn't that the natural expression of the unregenerated heart? Whenever there is a thunderstorm coming into our landscape, into our life, that all of a sudden we say, God, don't you care that I am drowning, that my life is at stake, that my children are going to be lost? If there is someone who cares, then it is the one who chose to enter into our boat and rides the waves with us no matter how high and low they can be we don't know how quickly the wind dropped but the way that the disciple reacted who were then so fearful by seeing the effect, the power of his words, seemed to indicate that it wasn't just a storm that kind of moved away, you know, for the next hour or so. But it was more like, you know, you're, you're sitting in a movie. You know, they used to, uh, to uh, when the um, films, movies were still on, on celluloid, you would show a, a movie on celluloid and all of a sudden the power would go out, what would happen? It will go go like, whoa, and you're stuck in pitch darkness. And that's the way that I envision, that I see the whole scene. It wasn't just a matter of just naturally moving away. It was really an abrupt falling and quieting of the wind and of the lightning and thunder to leave them in pitch darkness. They could not see Jesus, it was too dark. But they knew they had someone on board who held not only their lives, but the life of the entire universe. For he had the power over the wind and by implication over the forces of darkness, of the forces of the devil. Because what he said was, he rebuked the wind. An expression that is used when Jesus cast out demons. And so, this is Jesus going from a serene scene, inviting his children to listen so that their faith be nurtured and would grow to that Jesus who then says, Don't you have faith when you are stuck in the most difficult thunderstorms of your life? So easy to say, God, don't you care? No, God cares. He is right there in your midst, in our midst, in your life, if you invite him into the boat of your life. May we ever remember this, that no matter how dark it is, Jesus is there.